you have your Bibles open to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, there's a loved passage here that we're going to look at. It's well-known, well-appreciated. Um, it's known as the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. I want to put a little different spin on it this morning, if I may. If you'll read it with me, it's beginning in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Let me just preface my remarks by saying something. This, this is always difficult. You know, Mother's Day, Father's Day. Because inevitably, invariably, there are people who come to church or maybe even avoid church because they know it's Mother's Day or Father's Day and something's to be spoken about mothers and fathers and they may have not had a mother or father or mother or father, they just lost them or had some traumatic experience with one or the other. And so I, I just want you to know that I'm not unaware of that and I don't want to be insensitive to that. We're, we celebrate fathers. And certainly uh, there are going to be people who didn't know their father. I've talked to somebody this morning who, who, who didn't know their father. And so they, they're bereft of a father. There are people who I've talked to over, over time who... Uh, their fathers were not exactly the best fathers they could have been. So I want to be sensitive to that, and I, w- I want us to understand that we have a Heavenly Father who is truly a Father in every sense of that word that we can conceive of. And uh, I remember, and I've, I've said this a number of times to different people uh, who have confided in me, you know, they hear about, they read the Bible, they hear God's my Father, they say, I can't relate to God as a father. There's this barrier. And, um, and I tell them, the only, the only way you're going to relate is by faith. You, you, you read it. You read what he says about himself. And you have to make a decision and say, okay, I believe that. I believe you. It's a step of faith. Regardless of whether or not you had any kind of good relationship. And now certainly... It may help if you had a wonderful father to bridge that gap, if you will. But all of us still are called to relate to God as our father. And, and this parable is a marvelous, marvelous picture of our God as our father. So bear that in mind. And if you're one of those people who struggle with this area... Um, just trust him. This morning, maybe you say, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going I'm I'm to really believe that you are my father, and then you're going to teach me what a father is really like and what a father's love is like. We all crave it. We all need it. That's the way God's made, made us. So let's read, shall we? Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, uh, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to uh, his fields to feed pigs. Now, 
just as an aside, Jesus is Jewish. He's telling this parable to Jews, and for Jews to do this is an absolutely abhorrent thing. And indeed, it is uh, prohibited by the Mosaic law to have anything to do with pigs. So this is you got to know this guy's in desperate straits to, to even be willing to do that. He longed even to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. What a marvelous picture. Isn't that, isn't that terrific? Can you see this? The son is saying, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. The father just ignores him. Bring the calf. <laughs> Let's have a party. <laughs> oh, Marvelous. Question, who do you believe is the central character in this parable? Who's the central character? The father, that's right. Now, the way the parable is, is structured gives you that, that insight, hopefully, but, I mean, the title says the prodigal, the parable, uh, the prodigal son, but, but the reality is that the father is the central figure. It, it's all about God. He's the central person of this whole, this whole book. The two sons are, are simply supporting characters, if you will. Who does the father represent? God. God. I wonder if Jesus wasn't hoping that maybe we would even ask that. Who, who does the son represent? Us. Very good. Very good. Now, I want to suggest to you, as I, as I did a little while ago, that this is not the parable of the prodigal son so much as it is the parable of the prodigal father. And I say that if you look up the word prodigal in, in the dictionary, which I did, it, it has numerous meanings. Um, obviously, it means profligate. It means wasteful, and certainly that would apply to the son. But it also means abundant, extravagant, Boundless, plentiful. It has those meanings as well. So while the son was prodigal in the sense of being wasteful and profligate, the father's love knew no limits. It was boundless. The father's forgiveness, again, had no boundaries. It was abundant. And the father's joy knew no restraints. It was plentiful. This is a picture of God's prodigal love for those who are lost. This parable is a picture of God's prodigal love for those who are lost. And Jesus tells this parable, along with the other two, the, 
the lost sheep and the lost coin. He tells these in response to the criticisms and to the mutterings of the religious people of his day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Go back and, and look at the first two verses of chapter 15 with me. Luke writes, he says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. He had words of life. He had words of hope. These people were hopeless, and and they were the outcasts of the culture, and they were gathering around to hear these words. You would think that the religious establishment would be flocking to him, uh, but listen to what Luke says, verse 2, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. How many, how many are glad that, that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? <laughs> yeah. You won't come to Jesus unless you know that you're a sinner, unless you know that you're lost, unless you know that you're on the outside looking in. And these people began to understand that. And he, he, as I said, he had words of life for them. They wanted to hear him. They couldn't get enough of him. Flocked around him, gathered around him. So that's why Jesus tells this parable, because he, he wants these people to hear, and as well those, those religious people who are, who are standing off on the side judging. He wants them to hear about who God is, the compassionate love of the Father for those who are lost. He doesn't reject them. The question is, what is God like? What is God like? Look at the Father. You simply look at the Father in the parable. And you begin to see, this is what God is like. Look at what God was doing and would do through the one who tells the parable. Remember his name. His name was Emmanuel. Meaning what? God with us. Jesus says it himself. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we look at, we look at the Father in this passage and we, we begin to see and understand what God is like. We look at Jesus and we see what God is like. Full of compassion, grace and mercy, truth, life. It would mean Calvary. Calvary. But it would not end there. It would not end there. His love, his grace, his mercy, you could label it, you could call it lavish. Lavish. You could describe it as being extravagant, excessive, in some minds even wasteful. Certainly in the minds of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. What a waste. Especially when you consider man's fallenness, man's faithlessness, man's selfishness, and man's treachery. Who of us haven't stood back and, and seen this kind of treachery? We, 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 we heard from Ellen this morning. We think of the, the people who, who take these young women and trick them and and sell them into, into bondage and sexual slavery and all sorts of vile things. And, and you want to get those guys and just kill them. They're treachery. They don't deserve God's love. Do any of us? 
We think, God, don't waste your love on that people. We say that about them, and we need to say it about ourselves. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God's love is extravagant. He pours it out. I call this in spite of love. In spite of love. I love you in spite of. Every parent understands that, right? Sometimes I want to kill you, but I love you. (laughs) In spite of love, did we do anything to deserve it? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Beloved, that's the mystery and the wonder of it all. That's the mystery and the wonder of it all. We, We still, even though we know that, We still get caught up, and I would submit this, every one of us, we get caught up still in that subjective aspect of having to deserve God's love, measuring up, doing good, um, being worthy enough. Is that true? I mean, we know logically, you know, I can't do anything to earn God's love. God just loves me in spite of, right? But there's a part of me that goes, okay, I want to measure up. We have to keep coming back and reminding ourselves, oh God, your love is just, it's, it's unconditional. It's not conditioned on what I do or don't do. You love me in spite of. We need love. We need forgiveness. We need reconciliation. I want to submit to you, we need those things, those intangible things, as much, if not more, than we need food, water, and rest. Look, all around us, people are, are starving for love. They don't realize it. They're starving for forgiveness. To be forgiven and to forgive, they can't sleep. Their lives are going crazy. They're becoming drunks and drug addicts and every sort of perversion to fill that grief and that loss. We need these kinds of intangible things. And that's exactly what God offers. That's exactly what he offers. And and why? Because that's what he is. He's a father. He's a father. What father doesn't recognize the needs in his child and doesn't try to meet those needs? Doesn't try to supply those needs? Loving father. The word father, I believe, is far and away the greatest of all God's names. The Bible's Gives him lots of names, lots of designations, lots of titles, if you will. But I think Father's the greatest. Father. Abba. It is more, by the way, and much more than simply a projection of the qualities of earthly fathers. We tend to always project back onto God our experience here. 
when in fact we're supposed to do the opposite. We're to go here, find out what the truth is, and then bring the truth to bear on our life rather than project back. But we're always doing that. And so when he talks about being a father, we tend to judge God in his fatherhood by what we know about fathers here on earth. Doesn't work that way. If I'm going to be a father and I want to be the best father I can be, then I need to know about God's fatherhood. I need to emulate his fatherhood. That's clear to me. It's a name that demands its own definition. And only he can define it. And he defines it as we read the text. God himself defines the name Father. We can't define it apart from what he tells us. And he defines it through Jesus, through his son. That's why Jesus tells the parable. It's in this parable that the one who is called the, the, the Word of God in John's Gospel. In the book of Colossians, Jesus is described as the image of the invisible God. In the book of Hebrews, he is the exact representation of his being. It's through the Son that we hear him tell us, this is what I am like. This is what I am like. This is how much I love you, as he tells us in this parable. Now, the, the prodigality or the extravagance of the father in this parable, uh, we're going to see it in five different ways. It, it just, to me, it's just astounding. But I want to share these insights with you. We see it, first of all, number one, in God's benevolent approachableness. He is benevolent, is he not? And he's approachable. Now, if we don't understand that about him, if we wonder about him, can I, can I go to him? Can I approach God? Is he, is he benevolent? If I don't have that confidence, chances are I'm not going to go, am I? The writer to the Hebrews puts it marvelously in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, when he says, let us approach the throne of grace with great trepidation. Right? No, how should we approach it? With confidence. Why? He says, because we can go there confidently, knowing that we can receive what? Mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God, help. And there'd be confidence that He will. He'll sustain us moment by moment by moment by moment. He's approachable, and he's benevolent. Now, if you go back to the parable, the younger son could go and ask his father because he believed his father was what? Approachable and benevolent, gracious. I want to suggest to you, the father was not necessarily, as we would understand it, permissive in the negative sense. But he was approachable. The son fully knew that. He had experience with his father. He knew he could go to his father. I, I, I suspect that the son probably would not have done that if he had been uncertain of his father and uncertain 
of the fact that he could approach him. Probably would never have asked. We do. We shrink back. We say, well, you know, I don't know. There's no sense in going. They're just going to say no. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Do you suppose that when the son went and approached the father and asked for his share of the inheritance, do you suppose that the son was completely forthright? Might the son have had a different agenda, do you think? Notice the son doesn't say, give me my share of the estate so I can go out of here and run my own life and waste it. Do you suppose the father knew the son's real motive and agenda? Or or the father was just kind of blind and naive and stupid? I want to suggest to you, he knew. He knew full well what probably was going to happen. Do you suppose the father was a student of his sons? He knew them, knew their characters. Yet his response was what? It was immediate. And it was magnanimous. Why would the younger son ever, ever want to leave a father like that? No hint of harshness on his part. The father wasn't a rigid dictator driving his son away. That father longed only for his sons to enjoy the fruit of his labors and his careful accumulation, Jesus says it gives your heavenly Father great joy to give you the kingdom. He wants us to enjoy all that he has. We become co-heirs with Christ. Why would we ever want to run away? Why would we ever want to do our own thing? Why, when we have a Father who is so marvelous like this, Think for a moment on the meaning of our inheritance from our Heavenly Father. What's our inheritance about? It's about everything, isn't it? All the resources of life. He's given us an intellect. He's given us a will. He's given us the capacity to experience emotion. Some of us might argue about that one. He's given us a beautiful world. He's given us marvelously functioning bodies, miraculous bodies. He's given us everything, a whole creation filled with just the, the, the delights of existence. And he says what? He says, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. But with one qualification, that we acknowledge that all of these good gifts are just that. They're gifts. They're not rights. As soon as we step over from receiving a gift to making it a right, this is mine, we have just short-circuited all the joy, haven't we? They're gifts, and they're gifts, and we, we need to be thankful and praise the gift giver. James tells us every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. Paul writes to Timothy, speaking of God, he says, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Life is not meant to be a drudge. 
Life is meant to be enjoyed. God's given us a, just a, awesome, awesome blessings. And he means for us to enjoy life. Enjoy him. Enjoy our relationships. Enjoy one another. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. We want to claim all of these gifts as our own, our rights, and live the lie that what we have and are is a result of our own clever creativity. Look what I've done. Look what I've made. Look what I've accomplished. That problem is as old as the garden. It's as old as Adam and Eve, and it's as old as Lucifer prior to that. It simply boils down to this. The stupidity of independence. That's what it's at. There isn't a single one of us that isn't tempted to be independent. Stand on our own. In fact, I think we erroneously teach our kids, stand on your own two feet. Be independent. You don't need anybody. Ah! Yes, we do. This is where our whole culture misses it. This is where our whole educational system misses it. We need one another. We are interdependent. This is the mission of the testimony of the, of the scriptures, the church. We need each other. I need you. You need me. That was the whole point of our, at least their initial studies on spiritual giftings that we've been talking about. Problem is we all want to be the one thing we can never be. God over our own lives. We want to be like God, but on our own terms. It's a subtle thing. You're hardly even aware of it. You want to determine the course of your own life and your own destiny. You want to be able to call the shots. This is why Proverbs says, acknowledge him in all of your ways. Not just in a few. Not just in the easy ones. Not the obvious ones. All of your ways. We don't take our life into our own hands. It's not our life to do that with. It's a, life is a gift. If you're a Christian, you've been purchased with a price. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to him who's purchased you. The assertiveness of the younger son exhibited uh, in leaving his father, I believe he had mistaken for freedom and happiness. I'm free, I'm free, I got my share, I'm going to go out and live my life. Not freedom. He's headed straight for chaos, isn't he? Straight for chaos. His basic error was that he thought self-gratifying indulgence would make him happy. (laughs) Beloved, that is the essence of sin. Willful rebellion. It was willful rebellion. Rebellion from his father, rebellion from his family, everything that he thought. What's the second way we witness the father's extravagance, do you think? The father just lavished him with his share of the estate. What's the second way in the parable that we witness the father's extravagance towards his son? This is astounding. He let him go. He let him go. 
This will drive mothers crazy. It's got to be only a father's strength that can do this. And a mother has to trust the father. It's the hardest thing to do. He let him go. The father loved the son so much, he wouldn't restrain him. Oh, my. Does that create a problem for anybody? Mostly the moms, huh? <laughs> don't let him go. What are you doing? You, you, don't, you know what's going to happen to him out there? <laughs> Calm down. It's going to be okay. God is still on the throne. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, Mark records uh, this, I think, significant event. It's in, it's in all, all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but Mark's the only one that says this. It's the interview that, that Jesus has with the rich young man, and he comes to Jesus all very sure of himself and proud, and, but he wants to make sure he's got all of his bases covered, and he says, what, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says this, 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 and he says, all these things I've done for my youth, and, and, and Jesus says, ah, oh, one thing that you, you, you lack. One thing, that's it? Just one? Cool, man, I'm doing pretty good. What's the one thing? What's the one thing? Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Then you'll be free to come follow me. Now Mark says this. In chapter 10, verse 21, prior to telling the young man that, Mark puts this editorial note. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And loved him. That's not in Matthew's or Luke's account. Only in Mark's. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he tells him he's got to sell everything. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he says, at, at, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The point I want to make Jesus loved him. He let him go. Do you think that tore Jesus' heart? Think that? There's times when, I promise you, you know, you, you talk with somebody, they come and they ask for counsel and you, you give them, you open the scriptures, you encourage them, and you watch them leave. And it breaks your heart. You got to let them go. I've told people, they said, why didn't you come after me? Why didn't you drag me? Why didn't you? I said, love you too much. And I respect you too much to chase you down. Because if I have to chase you down now, I'm going to have to chase you down again. And I'm going to have to chase you down again. I've already shared with you you would not. It's hard. It's hard. Love only possesses what it releases. If I have to hold on to you, if I have to hold on to you just because 
you think that that's love. That's not love. Love is voluntary, isn't it? Love stays because it wants to. Not because you have to always chase it down, chain it up, keep it captive. Jesus loved that young man. And he loved him enough to let him make his decision. Doesn't mean that it didn't break his heart. Doesn't mean that it didn't grieve his heart. This is where a lot of mothers miss it. They just miss it. They think the fathers are uninvolved, don't care, don't know what to do. Fathers intuitively, loving fathers intuitively know what to do. Mothers, trust your husbands. What are we going to do? We're going to let him go. Ah! <laughs> you're, you're laughing because it's true. And, and, and the poor husband, he just looked at it as just insensitive, cold, doesn't understand. Oh, the baby's going to die out there. When the son came to the father, asked for his share of the inheritance, and the father gave it to him. And the son went off. What must the father have experienced? Do you think? What must he have experienced? Did the son even know that he would break his father's heart? Clueless. Clueless. Do we know when we break God's heart, our Heavenly Father? When we take our share of the inheritance and blithely go on our way, do we realize that when we grieve His Spirit, every time we turn our backs, Every time we resist his influence. Every time we just kind of dig our heels in. We don't believe him. We refuse his guidance. We renounce his goodness as the source of our lives. We question him. Now there's a difference between having questions and questioning. You know the difference? You understand that? Some have picked up their share of the inheritance and have left the Father as if never to come back. And it just amazes you. Others have in a thousand different ways that result, they've left in, a, in, a, in, in all these different ways and that results in, but in the same thing in the end point, but that relationship is still fractured. They don't just pick up and leave. They just leave incrementally. The distant country that he went to is the realm of rebellion. It's simply the realm of rebellion. It's more than a geography. It's a condition of the soul. It's more than just externals. It's a condition of the soul, the heart attitude. 
Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. It's our fallen nature to go astray. It's our fallen nature to leave the lure of the world, the enticements of the world. The distant country is the dwelling in the land of self-will. Though the younger son left in a decisive departure, most of us drift into that same condition. We don't just pick up and go. We just kind of drift into it. Little things at first. And then before long, we are no longer at home with the Father. How did I get here? Small things. Little things. Little things. Little expressions of self-will. If you go back into uh, the Old Testament and you read in, in Isaiah and Ezekiel, the two passages uh, that describe Satan's fall, in, in one of my, I forget which one it is, I think it's Ezekiel, we hear, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Incrementally. Prayer becomes difficult. See, if we have not a prayer life, it, 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 it basically says that, that we have drifted away. If, if you don't have any kind of significant communication with your father, you drifted away. Prayer life becomes difficult, and then it's not long before it doesn't exist at all. We think, ah, it's not the big deal. I still believe. No, you don't. You're a functional unbeliever. You're a functional unbeliever if you have not a relationship exemplified by what? Prayer, communication. I want to talk, God. I want to spend time with you. It's a relationship. But then we not necessarily repent, but we, we begin to rationalize. Well, you know, I, I, I don't see other people. I see other people are, we're all doing the same thing. You know, I don't see just great prayer life and all these other people. They all seem to believe and everything seems to be okay. How's your prayer life? Well, it's not what it ought to be. Oh, what's that mean? Non-existent. Well, I, I mean to, but you know, I just I get caught up in things. I, I get distracted, and, and I, I don't have time. And I'm, I, I really, you don't care. You just simply don't care. You may not have said I don't believe and just gone off. You've just been seduced. You've been seduced by the cares of this world. You've you've drifted away. You say, but I believe. No, you don't. No, you don't. What do we do with the gift of life? What do we do with the gift of life? Most of us are in some frantic search for meaning and purpose and significance and all, all this stuff. We stuff our lives with what we can take and touch, save or sell. Accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. 
The question is no longer, what will we do when the money runs out? The question becomes, what can we squeeze into life and acquire before the undertaker arrives? We laugh, but it's tragically true. When in fact we should be saying, but simplify, 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 simplify. Why? Because the cares of the world choke out the word. They choke out the relationship. That distant country will take all it can get. It took everything from that young man. It took everything from him. It'll take all it can get. And the only thing it has to offer is stark reality apart from the father. He was alone. He had nothing. And that's the condition of many professing Christians today. Look at the condition of the son, verses 14 through 16. He spent it all on wild living. And once you know it, just when he runs out of money, a famine hits. What a coincidence. He's got no place to turn. He goes and hires himself out. It becomes a, 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 a the word is mythios. It's the, it's the lowest on the rung of servants and slaves. It's the equivalent of a day laborer. He's got to depend moment by moment, day by day, whoever will give him a job on the street corner. He doesn't know if he'll get a job that day. Doesn't know if he'll eat. He longs to eat what the pigs are eating. But then notice verse 17. Verse 17, what it tells us. Then, what? He came to his senses. Is it an easy thing to take a good, hard, honest look at ourselves? Eh, no. <laughs> yeah, well, you think you can. Well, I really, man, I, 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 no, you don't. I remember when I was in seminary, one of my professors had me do uh, a self-case study. I'd never heard of such a thing. I didn't know what it was. He gave me absolutely no directions. Remember that? I had to do this silly thing. I was just free. How do you do? What do you do? Self-case study. And so it, it, it became clear to me that I had to find out who I was. Self-case study. Well, now, if it was just left up to me, I would have nothing but glowing reports. <laughs> My wife, however, balances that. <laughs> She tells me the truth. <clears throat> but then I, I discovered that I had to pick out about 20 people I had to go talk to. And I had to get prayed up and, and say, I need you to tell me about me. Oh, man, that is the toughest thing in the world to do. And to sit there and listen to them and, and say, I want you to be truthful. I want you to be honest. You know, just... Tell me what you think. It's not easy to take an honest look at ourselves. We'll resist it as long as we can. It often takes a tragedy or a devastating loss in our life to wake us up. We see this reflected in the young boy's life. I didn't become a Christian until I experienced a devastating loss. Everything. 
Bingo, the light goes on. Whoa. Coming to our senses means seeing ourselves for what we really are, for what we could have been, and what we may become, for good or for bad. What's, I looked at my life, and, and I knew if I'd been living, if I continued to live my life this way, I was at a fork in the road. If I continued living, I was going to get more grief. I needed to make a change. This is what I could be. This is what I might be. All of a sudden, we begin to see what we've done with the gift of life, apart from our moment-to-moment dependence on our Father. It's simply the essence of sin. It's just sin. Thirdly, I want you to note the Father's love again. Not only was he extravagant in in giving his son his inheritance, not only did he not stop the son from leaving as an expression of his extravagant love, although it broke his heart. Thirdly, he did not step in to save his son from the reality of the distant country. How many would want to go out there and rescue him? Yeah. No guardians were dispatched by the father to soften the blows of coming to his senses. The father allowed the shame and the degradation to have its effect. You're standing on the sidelines, you're watching this, you're going, oh, someone please go help this guy. Father allowed it. Didn't, didn't send any, anybody to help soften those blows. Is God mean? No. He loves us. So often we ask if God sends difficulties. Beloved, he doesn't have to. Life offers more than enough. Jesus said, as a matter of fact, each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. You're going to have trouble. Don't worry about it. It's going to be there. We cry cry out, what's the meaning of this, God? And he patiently waits until we can humbly ask, what's the meaning in this, God? Whoa, what a difference. Arrogance. What's the meaning of this? Like you owe me. But you reach a, a place of humility where you say, God, show me the meaning in this. See, when you really know, you really do believe, you are in a relationship, you do trust him, it, it makes all the difference. All the difference. It doesn't remove the problems. You just gain from them. And when we come to our senses, guess what? We want to go home. That younger son wanted to come home. He came to his senses. We we want to come home to the Father because we know his love. We've experienced it. We've tasted of it. The extravagance of it. We want to go home. 
And we can. And we can. Somebody say, hallelujah. And the motive doesn't matter. Well, you know, I don't, I don't want to go home just because I'm hungry. He did, the son did, and it was okay. <laughs> and I want to submit to you, a hunger no food can satisfy drives us home. Amen. When we come to our senses. May I suggest this? Life without the Father is no life at all. Life without Him is no life at all. Next, the parable tells us what kind of prodigal love awaits us. Each and every time we return to the Father, He's been waiting, He's been watching. The son has come to his senses. He's on his way home. And while he's a long way off, the father who's been watching and waiting every day sees him. And our heavenly father watches and waits, longing for us. He sees us a long way off. And he runs to meet us. When you read this parable, you see, you see what God is like. He runs to meet us. We're limping home. It was considered undignified for a, a senior man to run this way. He throws all conventions out the window. He's so overjoyed at seeing his son. He runs to him. May I suggest to you, our least response, our least response, just that we would turn our heads, just that we'd say, Abba, Father, just that we would orient ourselves towards him, our least response unleashes his immense, uncalculable responsiveness to us. You see that in verse 20 of the passage. The father runs to him embraces him, hugs him, kisses him, and the son hasn't even had a chance to give his well-rehearsed speech yet. But, but, but let me tell me, me, me. The father did not reserve his love for a period of restitution, did he? Well, we're going to wait here. We're going to just see if you're serious. I'm going to hold off my love here for you. No, he doesn't hold it off. Lavishes it on the boy. Does the boy deserve it? He didn't keep his son at arm's length until he measured up. Beloved, this is the gospel. This is the gospel in miniature, if you will. The unmerited favor and love of our Father. Unmerited, in spite of. Come home from that distant country. Come home to a father who's just waiting and watching and longing for you. And last, I want you to look at the extravagant blessing that the father gave the son when he came home. Totally undeserved, as exhibited by the older brother later on in the passage. The embrace. The kiss of reconciliation. These were followed by 
Again, lavish assurances of love. Verse 22, the best robe. The best robe, that which was reserved for an honored guest. But the son would be much more than an honored guest. He's the son returned. Honored. Shown honor. The signet ring, symbol of authority. The point being is that all the rights and all the privileges of sonship fully restored. It was the father's way of saying, you have been and always will be my son and the recipient of my love. Wear the ring. I give it to you. And the sandals? Sandals symbolize no more poverty, no more slavery. And then the fattened calf in the celebration. Oh my. Spare nothing, the father says. Spare nothing. I want the whole world to know my son is home and to come and celebrate with me. Let's have a party. Extravagant love? What do you think? Absolutely. This is what happens in heaven when you and I come home by faith. There's a heavenly celebration. Luke says that the the angels in heaven rejoice. The realization that we have the capacity. Think about this. The realization that you and I have the capacity to bring our heavenly father joy is, I think, the liberating nature of the Christian life. There isn't a single one of us that would, that would like to be able to bring joy to some person. I want my life to be a joy to you. The fact that we can bring him joy liberates us. Liberates us. You say, can this, can this be really true? Yes. It's really true. It's, really, it's not just a story. It's really true. How can I be sure of that? Because Jesus knows. Jesus knows his Father. He came to tell us about him. He came to show us his love. And he told us in a parable that we cannot forget. The Father's love. Happy Father's Day. Amen. Father, we do love you this morning. We're grateful for your love. Lord, we're sorry for the ways in which we have abused that love and your care and your provision. We repent this morning. We're thankful that you are just an awesome Father. Gracious, merciful, just, compassionate, righteous, holy. That you love us with an in spite of love. Lord, help us to respond to you. Open our eyes, Lord. Stir our hearts, I pray. Help us come to our senses. Any of us who are wandering, Lord, that we might come home. We love you this morning. The Bible says because you first loved us. Amen, church? Amen.
Turn to your neighbor and just uh, encourage your neighbor uh, with one, one thought that you got this morning that you're going to take away with you. Just encourage your neighbor with that, would you? Let's stand together and sing his praises before.